Russia was the, the Union of Soviet Socialist right. Republics. And they'd say, oh, but aren't you so glad that you're in America? I said, well, I know a lot of Russian filmmakers. They have a lot more freedom than I have. All they have to do is be careful about criticizing the government. everyone good evening and welcome to another episode of pop life where we take a deep dive into different aspects of pop culture movies television and something i did for a long time music don't forget if you like what you're seeing or hearing please hit like it's a passive gesture it goes a long way don't forget to hit subscribe so you're notified Whenever we go live, oh, actually hit the notification bell so you're notified whenever we go live. I'm so sorry. Because we're constantly adding new shows like this one. And since this show is about music, I wrote a thing that you can purchase. <laughs> Wherever you are listening, there are links in the description. Time is running out. The show is Saturday. It's the live meet and greet. We're going to be doing the book launch party in the San Francisco Bay Area. Ben Burgess is going to be there introducing and kicking the whole thing off. I'm going to talk a little bit. Then I'm going to give the floor to some of my heavy metal, punk rock, hardcore rock friends. Chris Contos from Machine Head and Attitude Adjustment. Craig Lissistro from Forbidden. And Rick Huno from Exodus. It's going to be a very, very fun time. I was just told there's going to be catered barbecue, liquor for you drunks. I know you guys drink. Fun event. Wherever you are watching right now, the description, there's a ticket link. Get tickets. I want to meet you guys in person. I want you guys yell at me if you disagree with me. I'm we're gonna do a QA. If you say, Jay, I think you're everything you say is BS and the culture of deconstruction and authenticity that you write about is bullshit. You tell me to my face is bullshit. We may fight. We probably won't fight. It's not that serious. Also, if you haven't read it, I have a new article out in Damage Magazine. I was just recently on Left Reckoning yesterday talking about it. You can check that out. And also, uh, I was also on the fucking Canceled podcast talking about that article as well. And there's a link in the description to the new article at Damage, The Man Who Sold the World. And yes, I used... David Bowie, song title for that. Because everything I write is a song title. That's how much I love music. Now, our guest today, very stoked to have this guy. I hope you guys are equally, equally as excited. Someone says Jason's too scared to come to Minnesota. I'm not scared to come to Minnesota, but I don't believe in snow. <laughs> I know it exists, I've seen it in movies. And that's where it needs to stay. I lived in North Dakota for a while. 
literally the last time I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota, playing a show at a club that I found out no longer exists. It was snowing. Me being a California native, I was wearing Vans. Do you know what it's like unloading equipment with Vans on? You look like a cartoon. That's what Minnesota is to me. And then the band decided to take me out to some all-night vegan place. All of that sounds like a nightmare. Unless you can guarantee me that there's going to be ample footing uh, and meat. If you can guarantee me those two things, I will definitely take this book party. Maybe not the exact same people in the book party, but I, to on the road to Minnesota. But if you can't guarantee me those two things, can't go. Can't go. Sorry. Now, Tom Warman in the bygone era. I'm excited about this show. It's not often we get to talk to music legends here on TIR, and today I'm pretty stoked to have uh, a man that was part of many of the albums that I enjoyed in my childhood and helped shape the way I play, record, and I produce music. He sold over 50 million albums, and he has a new book memoir out now, now called Turn It Up, Making Hit Records in the Glory Days of Rock and Roll. Wherever you are listening or watching this show, there's a link in the description also to Tom's book. Please welcome super producer Tom Orman. How are you? Thank you. Very, very well. Thank you. Great to I be hope- I hope this is the only time you've done one of these and you got a standing ovation like that. I, absolutely. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining me here on TIR. Uh, it's a pleasure and honor to speak with you. Uh, uh, I want to ask you right out the gate before we get to all the behind the scenes stuff. Do you believe the glory days of record producing is dead? And if so, what do you believe killed it? And what could be preventing it from returning? Well, do, do you mean the glory days of, of producing or the glory days of rock music? Does I guess kind of both, right? Because you're, you're producing. When I read, again, we talked a little off air. I never got to have the, you know, big budget studio steely dan stories of it takes six weeks to find the right chair for the guitar player kind of <laughs> kind of records right <laughs> so there's an era where you could record an album and it was going to take you a while to record that album you're going to get it was going to take you forever to get tones mm-hmm. um you're bringing in different musicians especially if you talk about groups like steely dan you know um it's not just four guys in a room hammering out a song, right? There's there's musicians in and out. There could be background singers. Um, there's a lot involved, and you were getting budgets to do that. Yep. Um, rock music is still selling records or downloads, whatever you want to call it. Um, Metallica just set a record for the largest attendance ever. They've been breaking attendance records on this last tour. Um outpacing people like taylor swift sorry swifties metallic is outpacing you it's just the truth um so i I wouldn't you know i don't think that the music is dead per se but they're an outlier in the sense of i don't know how many bands 
can still take that kind of time. And even Metallica, you know, kind of has their own compound that they record in at this point. Um, you were you were living in a whole different world of uh, of budgets and and uh, tour support, <laughs> artist growth, product development, product of oh. artist development. And that's kind of where you start. Yeah. In, in artist development. Um, do you think those days are kind of gone because now it feels like this guy's got a gajillion followers on social media platform X, give them a record deal, throw it out there, see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. They do, uh, they do find bands <clears throat> and acts through algorithms and I'm hard pressed to be, define an algorithm. I'm, 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 I'm a tech I'm a technical idiot and I'm really living in, in the past in many ways. I, I'm a Luddite. I kind of, technology has slowed my life down and made it more difficult. Um, everybody else is loving it and benefiting from it. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that rock, yeah, I I think rock music, uh, classical classic rock is, is, you know, a defined era and and it's over um i think it i think it's 60s 70s 80s and um for me it was 1954 to somewhere in the mid 90s um elvis to post corporate rock um i just think now everything's perfect we made records with real real people playing real instruments and now they'll select a single snare drum hit and make it all of the snare drum hits in one song everything's perfect no flats no sharps Mm -hmm. no time variation it's kind of soulless i think i'm listening to songs that are 40 50 years old that that still inspire me you know and and these days i, I admit I, I i'm not looking and i stopped looking for new music um, you know about 20 years ago mm-hmm. um but i don't think there you know what what happened to the guitar there's not a whole lot of guitar in in the music that i hear maybe mm-hmm. i'm listening to the wrong you know, source. I don't know, but one of the I mean, everybody loves classic rock is because mm-hmm. they know about it and they know about it because in many ways it's better than what they're being offered today. It, it's, I, fun, it, it's funny. Ooh, sorry. It's funny that you say that because I worked at a festival in 2016 called Desert Trip and it's yeah. at the same place where Coachella was, is. And it was the Rolling Stones, the Who, Bob Dylan. Oh, that was Old Cella. Old Cella. That's what they, that was the nickname. Yeah. I'd look, you said it, not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not in that industry anymore, so I, yeah, I probably could say a lot more. But part of my job was to do number stuff. And, and Desert Trip made a lot of money. Yeah. And as someone that was literally there there was a lot of young people there Mm. a 
lot of young people there because this was the first time all those people were ever on one stage. Right. Um, even if you look up Desert Trip on like eBay, you'll see the merchandise from there selling for hundreds of dollars. Huh. It was it was an event that made me scratch my head. And after that, when we started doing, you know, I, I worked a lot more festivals after that all over the country. I was floating around to do like numbers stuff. And um, one thing I saw was that establishment acts definitely bring in a lot of money. Even in venues, whenever the young artists would come up, they just don't sell liquor. Sometimes they don't even sell that many tickets. And with the way venues are put together with food and beverage companies, um, yeah. if you're not if you're not selling liquor, uh, you won't be around that long. You, know, you can't you can't keep the doors open on uh, on water. <laughs> well, you know they charge five bucks a bottle. But... Well, that's yeah, yeah. That's the thing about Coachella is the only place where they don't, because the dude was afraid. So it's like built into the contract. You can't charge more than two bucks. Only Coachella, only Coachella. By the way, um, so there is something to be said, I think, about about this music kind of resonating with people. But I do want to ask you: Do you think that new music now it's so we're so atomized, and it's so categorized, like? The hyper categories that you have, it's not just classic rock. It's classic doom metal, polka, disco. There's so many categories. And at one time it was rock, yeah, R&B, and sometimes those things you couldn't tell the difference that much, especially when you get to bands like the Isley Brothers. Yeah. Um, so do you think the classic rock era that you worked in benefited from the fact that there weren't these strong demarcating lines between genres like there are now could be i mean that that's probably it's probably better for um you know people borrowing from somebody else M music um is is derivative mm -hmm. uh, people uh, musicians seem to take something from the past and amend it or improve it or you know, perverted or, you know, but they move forward mm -hmm. and, and, and it's much uh, more creative to do that without categories because there's, there's really not that, that much you can do new if you have to remain in your narrow category. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we can, people like to, look back at history sometimes and complain about the seventies being this era of overdoing it, you know, big ass light shows, <laughs> three <laughs> guitar solos. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, right. There's something to be said about doing what you want to do and experimenting and throwing it out there that I don't know if people are doing now because of this, these micro genres. Do you feel that way as well? I don't. I don't feel that it's because of the uh, mm. uh, of the categorization. Mm. But I do feel that there is, um, you know, pretty much uh, 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 some some uh, lack of um, exploration. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, moving into new areas. Uh, 
something big uh, beside Taylor Swift um, <laughs> should, you know, it hasn't come along uh, really. Yeah, I agree. In, in quite in quite a few years, and um, you know, starting in the early '50s, something really exciting came along every year, mm-hmm. basically, and and especially from uh, England. Mm-hmm. You know, England churned out about twenty-five really influential acts. Mm-hmm. In 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 a, a ten year period, we we managed about ten, and we had four times the population. Um, there was an avalanche of creativity. It was just just amazing. It's not happening now. Um, I don't. I really don't enjoy channeling my parents. But <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I walk into a store and I hear a you know, in a supermarket or, 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 or a CVS or something. And, and, and I hear this music they're playing and I, I do want to say, do you call that music? (laughs) 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 I don't, but I want to. Well, you know, your book starts off, you taught you, you really go through your life, but it's a very linear book. Right. And, uh, Elvis is the first thing that, um, that you're all about. Are you a Stax Records person? I don't know much about Stax. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have a t-shirt. <laughs> Did you get but, it at Walmart? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't remember. I think somebody left it here, but I like it and people people enjoy seeing it. Um, Stax Volt. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember too much about which artist was on which label interesting that yeah. wasn't the thing back then no it was just what it was it more it seems like again uh, i'm just reading your words yeah. i'd love for you to tell me more about it because it i i felt a sort of excitement as you're as i'm reading these words i can feel the excitement of a young sounds like preteen tom you know getting some money and going to the record store or you said the grocery store to buy your 45s yeah. So, you know, now, again, with all the, the technology in our pockets, we know, you know, go go to this label if you like that kind of music or this kind of sound. right? Uh, and you're just like, I want to hear the thing. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what it was like early on before people were label conscious <laughs> when you're just trying to hear new music as a young person growing up in the East Coast. Well, it just uh, it, it just happened. Uh, you just sat back and 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 waited to uh, to to get what they were giving you next, and mm-hmm. it was hard to actually uh, um, know everything that was available and that mm-hmm. that uh, was coming out. And um, you know, there was a, a whole variety of uh, of talent, and uh, they would come up with different songs, different lyrics, different ways of recording mm-hmm. um you know it was almost overwhelming and then after 1964 mm-hmm. it was incredible you know things changed so quickly um you know elvis was a big change mm-hmm. um but uh, and and then things improved and and changed and developed 
um, you know, for the next 10 years, and then the Beatles. Um, I don't know if we'll see another, I certainly won't see another Beatles. No, no, um, I don't think, I, I think we're okay. too, we're too, we're too, there's no more, there's no terrestrial radio to that extent where you're going to have one person or one group that can dominate uh, yeah. a single medium that's yeah. that important to a, a large swath of people. Like you have an entire demographic, a new demographic in the teenager or newer, right? And the right. Beatles are like perfectly made for this hungry demographic. Yeah. When are you going to have that moment again? You can try to look to the 90s and boy bands, but are they going to be around and as relevant 60 years later yeah. as the people that we're talking about now? Right? The Beatles have a new song out. Yeah. Well, that was AI, you know. Ooh. That's John. That's that's an AI John Lennon. I I know. We talked yeah. a little bit about that on this show, another episode. Great. Uh, you know. I mean. How do I, you feel about? I that? can barely. I, I I can barely text, and and now they give me AI. Stop. Slow this train down. <laughs> I, I I don't I don't know I, I will I will tell you that it's a good time to be old, and, you know, because I just don't want to be have to be part of the of of of, of trying to achieve something in this day and age. Um, just personally, I'm, my brain is not capable of dealing with uh, social media or technology or, or certainly not AI. I don't I I. I don't know what it, I can't even I don't know what a Bitcoin is. Good. Nobody's been able to explain it to me. Don't let them. You're you're winning on that. Just keep it that way. <laughs> you mine bitcoins, and they it actually affects the environment. I yes. don't get it. Do, you don't need to. Okay. As don't trust in anything you don't understand. Hey, as the great Alex Guinness said in Star Wars, these aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Just. <laughs> hey, so we got this new thing called. I'm sorry, I'm deaf in this ear. I can't hear and just keep walking. Um, you, <laughs> you came up in the era of the uh, authentic rocker. What we're talking about the the 60s, the mid 60s. Uh, what I mean is, people like Dylan weren't a part of the Brill Street Machine. Um, for you, is this a period where music is a little more authentic? When in the 60s. In the mid '60s, were the singer-songwriters coming to be a, a bigger, a bigger thing? Yeah, not necessarily more authentic, but certainly more interesting. Um, you know, uh, for for me, um, because you know, all the music then was, um, you know, was moving. It moved you one way or another. You got sad, you got happy, you got angry, you mm -hmm. got inspired, you got pumped up. Um, that really didn't happen in the in the early 50s, and uh, you know, uh, Elvis for me again introduced a completely new emotion. Um, he was, you know, he was my fighting buddy. It, it's like he's my he, he, we will rebel, 
Mm -hmm. Even though Elvis was a, you know, actually a pretty polite guy, his approach to music was, you know, just a, so upsetting to adults and so thrilling to me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It just it it, it just inspired me. It, it, I had never felt like that when I listened to his music. I was transformed. Mm -hmm. uh, and and then of course um, he made it possible for. Uh, everyone who came after him really to to take what he what he offered and run with it now i want to get into a little bit of your professional life now you go to an yeah. ivy league university you know you don't downplay anything in your book you're very upfront about your life i hope so uh, which which i thought was really interesting. Another another reason I was like, I don't know if anybody could be this honest like this anymore because someone would try to throw some sort of uh, critique at your upbringing. Like, well, this person came from privilege. They don't really deserve anything. Yeah. We're talking about uh, industry yeah. plants before, like people that have money. But if you look at yeah. the industry, a lot of people have an insider come from maybe not your beginnings, but at least there's some sort of insider uh, uh, connection they had to to an industry person you leave so i'll be brief it's 200 and some pages i can't recite them all all right the book right <laughs> but you you go to columbia university where you get your mba yeah kind of, it sounds like it sounds like somewhat begrudgingly you're trying to be the good son and well at that point yeah the college was fine but I really didn't enjoy having to go to business school. I didn't like business. I you couldn't got do it. Business. My, my, well, yeah. Well, you had to be in, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the way it, that's the way it worked. If you wanted to be in music, you had to be in business. But, but really, my parents always wanted me to be uh, a CEO, not desperately, yeah. but they. They imagined that I would be, you know, some kind of of, 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 of corporate executive, I guess. And that was a different time of corporate responsibility and a, and a corporate executive. I don't think it was the in the eyes of the people wasn't the, the villain that they are today. That being said, yeah. you you go get a job at an ad agency out of college. In yeah. New York. You don't like it too much. Hate it. And. You get a job down the way at CBS Records. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I was I was pretty suicidal uh, after a year at my job at the advertising agency, even though I was I, I had gone from game detergent to Jif peanut butter. And I really like Jif. Choosy mothers choose Choosy moms choose Jif. Yeah. Is that you? Did you make that slogan? Not because I wasn't. Again, I wasn't even in the copywriting department. I wasn't creative. I was in the account group. I, 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 I literally didn't know what I was getting into when I uh, accepted that job. And, and so I, I, I wrote a letter to Clive Davis. He was the most important guy in the record business. And CBS Records was the most successful and the biggest and most uh, diverse at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, uh, you know, I always said that getting an, uh, an appointment with Clive was like a Catholic seminary student getting a, uh, an audience with the Pope. Mm -hmm. 
there was no one more important, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to the, in the record business. So I, the, people were buying a lot of records and they were gearing up and hiring people and making records as quickly as they could. So it was a good time to ask for a job. And I asked for a job, not can I please have a job, but I already have a job. I already have a degree. Mm-hmm. You can see that I'm a serious person. I also am a musician and I love rock and roll music. Can I help you out here? Mm-hmm. So, so I, you know, I, I, I did a few interviews with, with some people there. And then uh, I was told that it was time to see Clyde. And, and, and I saw Clive. I had to wait 15 minutes to see Clive. Not bad. Uh, he had two secretaries working for him in, in a suite of offices. And when I walked into his office, he said, I'm sorry you had to wait. I was on the phone with Bob Dylan. And, you know, I said, my, my head exploded. I, you know, I was 25. And I didn't, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty cool. So he hired me on the spot. And, and there happened to be a an A and R position open, and it it was a very fortunate set of circumstances for me. I was really lucky, and then I signed a band, a you know a very a, a very successful band right away, and I was off, you know. And that band was REO Speedwagon, and and they're fifty years on the road today. Mm. Um, anyway, they gave me a. They gave me a credit card, a CBS American Express card, and said, go find hits. Pretty good job for a 25-year-old. Um, you know, it was, it was heaven. I went from hell to heaven. <laughs> so you, there is actually kind of a really heartwarming part in the book where you talk about you saw Clive Davis, you know, years later. And, uh, oh, yeah. And you say, hey, you gave me my start in the business. And he was like, you may not remember. He's like, of course I remember you, Tom. I thought that was really cool. I that was really yeah. cool. Um, so another thing I think is funny is you seem to be such a polite young young man that you're not trying to overspend on the company credit card. Right. <laughs> and you're <laughs> we don't want cash receipts. So you got to go charge it anyway. That's right. Now, an A&R, can you explain what an A&R is? Because I think people hear that term and don't know what it is. Yeah, they don't. Not many people know what a producer is either. But oh, we're going to get into that, but we just get an A&R first. A&R is artist and repertoire. In the beginning, like right up till the, uh, you know, probably the late 50s, um, you were assigned an artist, and it was up to you to find the right songs for him to record. Mm-hmm. So I would be assigned Frank Sinatra and I would try to find a song like uh, My Way or New York, New York. And <clears throat> we had pianos in our offices. I still had a piano in my office when I got there in 1970 because publishers would come in and songwriters would come in mm-hmm. and play the song for you right in your office. Um, later, when the singer-songwriter came around um, that the A&R person became really a, just a talent scout and, and would supervise the making of the records for certain artists that were assigned to him. So 
you know, it, you, I, I was a talent scout. I'd, I'd, I'd get uh, uh, cassettes and, and reel-to-reel tapes from managers and agents and lawyers, people who were involved and, and had an artist uh, or an act that they wanted to sign. And if I liked it, I would go see the band or the act, um, whether it was uptown to a club or out to California. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that because that's also something of a bygone era of sending in your music blindly to a label unsolicited and yeah. having said label listen to it. Um, last I heard is when people were dealing with labels like that. Um, it was kind of bad news to open up that stuff and listen to it because there had been quite a few lawsuits about copyright and stuff like that. Oh. Or do you, is, is it still a thing? Listen to unsolicited know. music. So, you don't... I don't think they... I don't, I don't think people get, you know, they don't get, get music delivered to them anymore. They, they, they search for it and online somehow. And, you know, I, I my son is in A&R oh. at, at Warner records in LA. What? Yeah. yeah he's a VP of A&R and we can't really talk about music that much because i don't understand too much of what he does and how he does it um you, you know they don't they don't go out and see live acts too much anymore it's a shame you know that was the whole thing let's see if these let's see if these guys can deliver live you know that sounds good like with boston you know mm. the demo was absurd and you know it, it, really it was totally finished product and and fantastic but we had to see them live what did li was live show still that important was the ticket sales still important it was everything not a local following was very important really yeah. oh yeah and and i mean live was it mm -hmm. um if 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 you heard a great demo and you went to see the band and they really weren't that good live you didn't want them at least i didn't want them who was a band that knocked your socks off live as in your a and r days you were like this i'm blown away uh, mother's finest and Ooh. and the producers both instant just just i said wow this is it this is a home run a, a grand slam home run and they both wound up being basically cult bands. And mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I loved them both. And I, I made two albums with each of them and God, it was disappointing. So, but, but they were just knock your, knock your socks off. Really just, just, just the best. Uh, there were others that were good too, but not like that. Why do you think in Mother's Finest case, they don't have a certain amount of commercial success? Do you think they're just too ahead of the curve when they're coming yeah, out? They were at the time, you know, uh, Living Color came sometime afterward. Way after, yeah. Right. And and I think that Mother's Finest may have uh, opened the door a little bit for them. But, the, you know, as I wrote in the book, the story from the promotion department was too black for white radio, too white for black radio really hard to promote, fell between the cracks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was terrible. 
you, it's, it's easy to blame the label for some unsuccessful albums that you, you produce. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't except for one or two. And, and, and those are, two. It's, that, it's, it's, uh, you know, I like the fact that we're, t- we're getting on this because, you know, uh, there's, there's black groups that I like that I felt never got a fair shot in the similar vein you know a little younger so for me it's fishbone is that band where where do you classify them Uh Um, labels still have a black music division um yeah but here was a group like fishbone or even you know talking about someone like mother's finest where you have you know it is kind of funky but there's a rock edge to it and for some reason there's and i think that's finally fading where you can say, okay, regardless of the color of these people, this is, you know, this is going to hit. Regardless, it's going to hit. Let's put it out. Oh, it's good music. It's good music. They just they incinerated the stage. They 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 were superb, and I don't get it. I I don't understand why nobody was interested in them except me at the time. <laughs> uh, and the same thing with the producers. You know that that just 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 perfect in every way and 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 novel and and great looking and great moving and good writers and good players and god yeah. anyway because you know it was it was I, I i their favorite musicians were zeppelin mm-hmm. you know and you had a mixed band mm-hmm. uh, it was just uh, i don't know we had we had fun. I was very disappointed, and and I and I feel bad for uh, for both of those acts because they put their you know their heart and soul into their into their work, and their their, their product was really fantastic, and no one really sh- can explain why 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 when, why when you would see those bands live, what was the audience comprised of? Well. I never saw the producers in any in, in a big venue. Mm-hmm. Um, I did see Mother's Finest open for the Who. Whoa! Yeah, um, people liked them very much because it was like, whoa, what is this? Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, yeah, I I I I got a chance to. I found them at. Uh, and Alex Cooley's electric ballroom in Atlanta in, uh, I don't know when it was, God, 77. So was it a majority black crowd that you saw? No, 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 no. Okay, so it was a mixed crowd. Uh, at least. It was probably predominantly white. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was wrong. You know, this is a this is a hard rock band. And and Alex Cooley's was the place. It was like the Fillmore, you know, mm-hmm, for, for, for Atlanta. Uh, but I, I, well, you know, it was probably a mixed crowd, but I wasn't even looking. You didn't see color? <laughs> or color? Yes. At the time, no. <laughs> you were stoned. <laughs> it, 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 it may have been, but. <laughs> then why do you think, okay, why do you think, if you're going out and seeing this band live, yeah. opening for someone like The Who, yeah. Right? And you're saying, look, 
they could they're they're playing in front of white people now. Why do you think white people are gonna be so scared of these these people? They're not they weren't scared, but it was too radical for radio. Radio mm-hmm. was just too commercial, mm-hmm. you know, and they had you know, by that time radio stations were being bought up by one company mm-hmm. and they had pro they had programmers. Mm-hmm. They had you know, very successful people who who were who would make up playlists. They'd listen to new music, they'd make up playlists, and every song in that corporation, every radio station in that corporation would would have that playlist. And you know, they were all they were um they were corporations, they were traded, they had stockholders. And, and they had a bottom line, and they, you know, they couldn't take chances the way FM, FM could. Well, let's talk a little bit about your first production, John. Mm. This is, you know, we're we're talking about your A and R days. You find a young man from Michigan <laughs> that. Yeah. People that watch this show are probably going to be shocked when we have a conversation. But I will preface this by saying I'm the biggest Ted Nugent fan, and that's even before I knew his stance on anything. As a little kid, sometimes he'd come on Headbangers Ball, and I was like, I don't really get it. Um, Headbangers Ball. Yeah, that's that's how old I am. That I'm <laughs> um, so I'm probably I might be your son's age. I'm 46. Uh, yeah, he's 41. Okay, so I'm a little older than your son. Yeah, he was the last of three for uh, for for us. My my eldest is 51. Are they all A and R's? Because that'd be really hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're not. One's a, one's actually a a therapist. Uh, <laughs> really. do, they, do they talk to you about your hatred for new music? <laughs> 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 they go, all right, Dad. This is this is why you hate new music. We're yeah. <laughs> no more therapy sessions at Thanksgiving. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But but uh, Ted Nugent yes. is someone you discover, and you did not discover him at a Klan rally, to the chagrin of everybody listening. <laughs> um, he wasn't. No. Uh, <laughs> he's a he's a regular dude, uh, ripping on guitar. What? Yeah you see in young Ted Nugent that makes you say, I need to sign this guy, and I think I want to help make some songs for him? Well, he's a good guitar player, and he had songs that that really were all built around this one uh, rhythm guitar riff, like, you know, Cat Scratch Fever, for instance. Um, the, the, uh, I also, uh, he, had, he had some very catchy commercial uh, songs that that he had written and that Derek St. Holmes had written, mm-hmm. you know, the 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 other guitarist in the band and the main vocalist, and he had more energy than anybody I'd ever seen. He he really did. He you know, he was maxed out for the entire time he was on stage, and he had a rap going, and he had, and he was moving around, and he wore ridiculous outfits and. I mean, you know, he was he was a performer, a real performer. And he also just, you know, ruled. He would walk into a room and suck up all the energy. Mm. Um, 
he, you know, he was he was the Motor City Madman, <laughs> and 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 he he just um, made a made a huge statement uh, on on and off the stage, and um, I had no idea uh, what he was like politically or socially or anything. But, <laughs> but it was just music. Yeah. You know, I went backstage and I said, Hey, you know, I really like what you do. And, 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 and then as, as we continued to work together, uh, in, in the studio, you know, he came to realize, to realize or think that, uh, um, I was the one who was, who made it possible for him to make albums that he liked, mm -hmm. uh, to safeguard the uh, character of his music which which was a little threatening the the character of his music um so i became a i i got co-producer credit and because i just horned in and made all kinds of suggestions in the studio because i wanted to protect my investment mm. uh, in him i i needed some i needed a hit at that time you know because i had already been turned down on three huge bands that i you got I, turned down on uh, and i and i i want you we're going to put a pin in ted nugent for a second yeah um you got turned down on tell me if i'm wrong here leonard skinnard yeah uh rush yeah and kiss correct uh and, and later on uh -huh. but but by a different person uh -huh. In 1982, mm -hmm. uh, Whitney. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. That was that was Electra Records. Why did they say no to Whitney? Well, it's an interesting story. This guy, new president, just elevated from Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. Joe Smith hired me to be the head of A and R at Electra in 1982. He was kicked upstairs right after I got there, and this guy. Bob Krasnow came in from Warner Brothers, and he was a very good uh, kind of jazz R&B guy, and, and he had he had very refined taste. Um, and anyway, he I went down to see Whitney with uh, Bruce Lundvall, who was number two guy at Electra. He asked me to come uh, with him because he he wanted my opinion, you know. So. Uh, we went down there. She's a beautiful young girl. Mm -hmm. Sang her heart out. Um, she was so good that I just laughed when 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 she stopped. I didn't I didn't have to say anything to Bruce. Um, we went back uptown, and we you know we we just uh, just gushed to 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 the president to. Bob Krasnow, you gotta go see this girl. You you have to see. She's really great. She's Dion Warwick's niece. Right, right. And and uh, and Sissy's daughter. Anyway, um, a few weeks later, he went to see her and passed. And and what he what he said was, why should I sign someone who sounds like Chaka Khan? When I just signed Chaka Khan. Wow, because Chaka Khan was 44 at the time. I don't know, but you know he had done that. He had signed her, and he didn't particularly um, distinguish between the two of them. I guess. Wow, they all look alike. 
<laughs> Jesus. So we have a super chat here, and on TIR, we're trying to get to all our super chats. Usually I have a producer here with me. A super chat time is where someone actually pays money to us. We'll, we'll ask their question on air. Uh-huh. So I'm not asking any of your Tom Warman questions without nope. a super chat. I'm being that guy today. Sorry, guys. Trying to keep the show on the air. <laughs> our, our good friend Strom McCallum from the glorious state of South Carolina. Ask any Alan or Phil Walden stories? Alan Walden, sure. Um, Alan, you know, was the guy who came to me with Leonard Skinner mm-hmm. and gave me a reel-to-reel tape with Freebird on it. Whoa! And okay. these were demos. There were demos. And give me three steps. And I don't know. What, you know how, how do they sound? Were they, were they pretty well? They're pretty well recorded. These demos were they pretty well well recorded? Oh yeah, yeah, they were well recorded. Sure. Um, at, you know, Alan and 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 uh, Phil Walden. Uh, you know, they were pros. Anyway, Alan was a very fine guy. He was a really nice guy and and a, a no bullshit guy. Mm-hmm. And he loved his band. He spoke very quietly with with a, a, a real Southern accent, and he was very nicely dressed. I, I really liked the guy in, in all respects. And I went down to Macon, Georgia to hear him, and they were fantastic. And I went back to New York, and I told my boss he had to come see him. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I wasn't I wasn't permitted to sign bands on my own at that time. So we went down to Nashville to the Exit Inn, and they played a set, and we left. And as we're walking across the parking lot, he 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 turns to me and he says, "Good band, no songs." Whoa! That was it. Then you know he was a good guy. He was a smart guy, but. He wasn't a rock and roll guy. So that was, that's what happened there. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a and Alan, you know, Alan went on, you know, they, they, they did fine. I mean, Al, Al Cooper uh, saw him probably about a, almost a year later and, you know, and, and signed them. Uh, and I'm glad it was Al. He's a great guy. Um, that was it. Uh, they they went on to you know to be very successful, and well, then I signed Molly Hatchet <laughs> after them. Skinner esque, huh? Yes. Uh, look, I want to ask you this before we move on to to more of your producing because I I find that this what you blew everybody's minds on Whitney Houston. I just want you to know that. Um, I would love yeah. to hear the. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall when you brought in Kiss. Well, you're like, I got these guys. They got makeup. They play rock and roll. They're like, if you don't get that shit out of our face, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) The goofy clown show you bringing in here, goddammit. Was that the smart guy again? Yeah. There was a, they were originally, Gene and Paul were in a band called Mm -hmm. Wicked Lester. Yes. It was a good band, pop band. Um, I heard a demo. I heard almost a finished album. I went down to the studio where they were working and I liked it enough to bring it to the label and they, they bought it. 
they, they, you know, they bought the album, they finished the album, it was cheap. Mm-hmm. And then the band broke up before we could release the album. They, call, they called me a few weeks later. I think it was Gene called me and said, we have a new thing. Could you come and see us? So I took my boss, <laughs> same boss, to uh, a rehearsal room and where we saw them in spandex and, and, and white face, mm-hmm. and, you know, like mimes almost. <laughs> and and uh, they, did the, they did a set, um, good songs, singing in the shower, you know, chorus, mm-hmm. strong choruses, and, you know, a big presentation visually. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, they were good. They were a three-piece at the time. They oh, didn't wow. have, yeah, yeah. And I can't remember, I can't remember exactly how that worked because Peter wasn't with them yet. I'm, uh, anyway, they were very, uh, they, they were good. We went back down the stairs to the street and, and uh, my boss turned to me and said, what the fuck was that? <laughs> That was it. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't laughing. (laughs) In my mind, in my mind, the scenario in my mind is uh, you guys walk in the room and you're not expecting the makeup and you're trying to keep a straight face and they play the songs and you're like, Oh shit. And you get the, what the fuck is this? And then you run back and like, Hey guys, uh, the mime thing. Can we just get rid of the makeup and you guys just be regular dudes. You might get a deal if you're regular dudes. And then, then, uh, then Paul Stanley looks at you and he does this with his hair. And he goes, no man, the makeup stays. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no. they, they persevered you know they did they yeah. did i met paul stanley years ago and he was actually yeah. a really nice guy um, yeah yeah he's a nice guy gene gene is uh is is quite a a character, character. yeah, yeah. We'll, just, we'll just call him a character we're not trying to get you you know can't have two old people fight in the streets like hip-hop <laughs> Jeans. <laughs> Warman, were you talking about me on a podcast again? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can't can't have that. Um what do they say about Rush? Were they like this guy with his high pitched voice? It's not gonna work. <laughs> no. There was two Rush wanted uh more money than the uh business affairs department was willing to give them for two albums. They wanted $75,000 for mm-hmm. two albums as an advance. Mm-hmm. And um, now business affairs wouldn't do it. If we wanted to sign a band, we would give it to business affairs to work out the deal. Mm-hmm. And and that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Cliff Bernstein signed them at, at Mercury a couple months later. I had gone up to Canada to see them. I was sure that this would be a really nice signing for me because it was it was elevated, you know. It wasn't, come on, baby, let's yeah, 
you know, rock all night. It yeah. was Rush. Um, and uh, so that didn't happen either. What was your take on the prog stuff that was coming out around that time? Rush, Genesis, yes. Were you a fan of that music as well? I was very impressed by it, but but it didn't, uh, you know, Owner of a Lonely Heart. Oh, in the 80s. was brilliant. Um, but no, I, I, I didn't... Uh, I did. I didn't love that. Love that music. Um, uh, and 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 one of the problems with with my career was I was so busy um, in the studio. Um, you know, over twenty years that I didn't hear much of what was going on outside the studio. I tried to keep up, but. Uh, so if you had a new kind of, um, not experimental, but, but, uh, progressive, uh, you know, uh, or alternative, uh, kind of a band, um, sometimes I wouldn't know anything about them or I wouldn't hear them or, um, you, the last thing you want to do when, when after 12 hours in the studio is listen to music. You mean you didn't want to listen to a 12-minute song? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What the fuck is wrong with you? Your ears are burnt from mixing a record. You don't want to turn all, you know, round. There were, you know, they got on there. I, I used to edit them down. I used to edit seven-minute songs. I edited for the love of money. Oh, I edited. Wow. I think I edited Peace Train. Anyway, I did some. I did some. Um, Gamble and Huff stuff. That's uh, the, I, I became the editor for all, almost all the singles that Epic re- released um, that were not edited by their producers. The label, Tom, was the label like, who's going to edit this black music? <laughs> that that yeah. new kid warming down at the corner office. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was just we we uh, distributed Philadelphia International Records. I saw that you in the in the yeah. you were talking and, about the yeah, different divisions. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, some no, great was, music. Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Oh yeah, yeah. There's great it, music that comes out of Philadelphia in that. Oh era. yeah, we went. We we saw the studio. I I I got a chance to see that. See where it all happened. Was there a fish a, tank in the studio? I don't. I don't. How, really. how black was the studio, Tom? <laughs> I do not remember. <laughs> There's a, you know, we're talking about 40, 50 years ago. You would remember I if you walked remember in the- all that stuff. I can't remember what I had for lunch. Uh huh. But I bet you remember when you walked into that studio. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's been, it was really wonderful. Um, so let's get back to Ted Nugent. And I will say this to, to put yeah. a turd in the everybody thinks Ted Nugent is a horrible racist punch bowl. Remember, just recently, when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame chair member said that women and certain black people don't belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Ted Nugent was one of the few voices I heard stand up and say, that's fucked up. That guy should step down because you don't want to piss on the legacy of so many women and black people that made this music that I play today. So hmm. to I didn't realize that. He did say that. He did say that. Huh. Um, that doesn't absolve him of everything. 
I'm just, again, putting a turd in the I hate Ted Nugent punch bowl. Now, you work with Ted Nugent. Um, <laughs> I hope you're having a good time, Tom. Yeah, very much. <laughs> or, or, or you're going to call your publicist like, if you ever send me. <laughs> <laughs> Who was that guy? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking insane. Uh yeah. Well, it's what, different, definitely different and refreshing. So go ahead. <laughs> I'm, right. You talk about you don't hear new stuff. This is new stuff. Tom. Yeah. Um, and yeah. please don't read the comments on the side of the screen because you're going to you're going to get derailed and laugh too hard because usually the comments are ridiculously hilarious. That being said, you work with Ted Nugent. What is it like recording that first record? Oh, easy. I was really just quality control because Ted, I mean, he'd been working on, on these songs for a long time. He had basically every note uh, of every instrument in his head and mm. he would tell people what to play. I mean, you know, he would, he would talk, you know, to Cliff, the drummer. And I mean, he did what, in the studio, what I eventually did in pre-production. Did you learn from him a little? No, I wouldn't say that. Okay. Um, but but what what we did was, you know, the band would play the song, and I'd say, try this. I think maybe the hi hat, it'd be better on the ride cymbal, and and that drum, that the the, the kick drum figure should be a little bit like this. Let's try that. So we would make all those changes. Ted just just told everybody what to what basically uh, how to play what they were playing. Um, and um, the first record I ever, the first song I ever mixed mm. with the engineer, of course, uh, was Stranglehold. And God, I had, I had such a good time. And there were three pieces of outboard gear. Wow. That's it. Okay. That was it. It was in 1975. You know, we were just we were just celebrating 16 tracks. <laughs> Do you bounce on tape, or you don't bounce tracks on tape? No, sure, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um. Did you, didn't have to cut a lot, you didn't have to cut a lot of tape with Ted Nugent. He was a, is, he, is he a one take guy? Um, he he was very good. I. You know, I, I don't even remember. We would go, uh, we would fix things. Mm -hmm. You know, I punched, I did a lot of punching in, in my career. I had calluses from, from punching record and then play. Um, no, it, it was a quick, very inexpensive um, album that was mixed uh, by uh, his, the guy who owned his production contract ordeal um and i didn't like it and it was it was pretty disappointing so i asked uh my boss if if if, if i could remix it and they gave me i think it was six thousand five or six thousand dollars that's what it would cost to remix an entire album so i went back down to atlanta remixed it and bang that was it so it was it's a big hit right away you there? Are you there? Jay? Hello. 
I can't hear you. I'm gone. You're gone. Where are you? Hello. What happened here? I'm hanging. I can see that I'm still on. Why aren't you here? Coffee break? <laughs> What's going on here? I don't know. Are you there? No. Hmm. Hmm. No, I can't. Rob, can you hear me? Uh, I can hear you now, but I can't see you. Okay. Yeah. Well, hey, is that a black joke? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, my power, my power went out. My, wow. my power went out. Uh, I live in Mexico. So oh. uh, we had a storm here in California or in Baja, California. Yeah. And my power was out for six hours. It came on for the last five and it literally just went out. So I'm oh. using my cell phone to connect to the internet and I was able to keep wow. oh, So I'm in the dark. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, sorry about that. No, yeah. I am because I'm enjoying this conversation. Um, I, I can keep going if you want to. Um, I will be run. I will run out of time in about 15 minutes. Okay. Um, then I, I, I would be doing myself a disservice if I didn't ask any questions about Motley Crue. Uh, yeah, well, okay. <laughs> you know, when people, I was, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say people think they, um, you know, that, that, that they behaved the way we know they behaved in the studio, but they didn't. It, it, mm -hmm. it, it was almost all out outside uh you know on their own time they i won't say they were the most diligent band i ever worked with but um they were surprisingly um focused on the project you know now you also worked with van halen correct no i no. did not in fact i never i was never even able to see them i met roth he was he was amazing character but but I never, uh, I never saw the band, and I did not work with them. Uh, that would have been fun. Ted, Ted Templeman at Warner Brothers produced all their records. Oh, I knew it was a T name. Sorry. Um, and I do have to ask you about L.A. Guns. Yeah, not a lot to remember from that, uh, from that album. <laughs> really. not, 
<laughs> not because no, not 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 for that reason. Uh, it, you know, I, I I was kind of burnt out by that by that time. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it was early nineties, and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, it was it was kind of more of the same for me. I I, I liked them. Uh, I think Tracy's a, a, an incredible guitar player, but uh, I really just, uh, you know, I, I have to admit, I, I, you know, I wasn't as involved with that uh, album project as as I could have been. Um, you know, I I, I I didn't purposely uh, not pay attention, but uh, I had. Uh, my engineer and, and and another guy we we used to uh, uh, work with uh, that that I really enjoyed. Um, I let them line produce half the record, I think, and and I took the uh, the other half, which included rip and tear, uh, one of one of my favorite hard rock songs, um, but. There was nothing really to 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 talk about uh, with the making of that album. Is there anything mm. you particularly wanted to know about them? <laughs> what kind of board did you use? No, I. Yeah, right. It's, uh, it, it feels like there was a moment where you're producing a lot of what we now call hair metal. Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah. Did do, do you think that did that genre add to the burnout? No, uh, it, it it really didn't because um, they were different enough. I mean, Motley Crue was quite different from Poison, um, and 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 all, both of those were quite different from Twisted Sister. But it was all the same, as you said, category. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, but but. Um, you know, both I and the and the the, the music listeners found uh, enough about each one to, you know, to 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 make them attractive. Um, they didn't say, "Oh, I I don't like this Twisted Sister album. I already have a Motley Crue album, and they sound the same." You know, so I I wasn't burnt out because of that. I was simply I got burnt out because. Uh, of of the uh, my age and and the amount uh, the number of albums I had made I I just been in windowless rooms for twenty years and fifty two albums is just I mean what is it fifty two times twelve you know <laughs> it's a, a, a devastating number of songs that I that I had to put together and do it, you know and and I had a family and I was in L A and I you know I I wasn't the, the the nicest person to my body dur dur mm. during all, all those years and mm. that was it so and also the music had changed uh pretty much um starting with nevermind or the beastie boys uh around the 1990s yeah. and, you know i i could see that it wasn't going to be productive for me to be making records for teenagers for too much longer but it's interesting that you bring up Nevermind because uh, for me, Nirvana, especially aesthetically, is kind of a return mm -hmm. to certain classic rock looks, even guitar shape wise. Right. There's no pointy guitars. 
and super processed sound that you get from Nirvana. And I'm not saying this as a Nirvana fan at all. I'm, I'm actually not really. Um, and they are kind of media darlings, right? This is quote unquote important music. Um, why was that not your thing? It seems like maybe working with a band like that would be easier than working with the the L.A. Strip guys. It would have been easier, I think, because their whole record making procedure was probably close to playing live. Yeah, very bare bones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all of my bands wanted to play live, and I would illustrate for them in the studio <laughs> why they shouldn't, and they would <laughs> they would agree. <laughs> I I I know we're on opposite sides of the country, but I hope when I make it out to the East Coast to do this, uh, I made a documentary movie and I'm gonna do screenings for it i hope i can meet you in real life because i got to hear some of these non-book stories from you because i know they're going to be effing hilarious um i I wish i could have been um i've heard some stories about poison i know i don't have you very long and on the show you were on a full in bloom he has the guy that did i think poison's first record i can't remember the man's name for life and this man tells Yes, yes. <laughs> that man, I don't know if he's a mean guy, but he tells a story about Poison being kind of the worst musicians. He's recording Brett Michaels line for line. Um, he made it sound like it was a bit of a nightmare. Huh. Did you have an easier time? Because you're getting him on the second record, right? Open up and say, ah, right? Yeah, they were great. Um, not the easiest record to make. Uh, lots oh. and lots of, of, of punch-ins, you know, corrections. And um, CC was not straight at the time. He was, you know, oh. he was pretty recreational. And 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 he's mm-hmm. capable of being a great guitarist. He is a great guitarist, but you know, he he was hindered by uh, by recreational drugs, and. Um, gotcha. That they worked hard, they were serious, um, and uh, it was just the most uh, memorable thing about the whole, about the whole project was how many women came into the studio to to see. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suggested to them that they should get a numbers machine, like in a delicatessen, you know. Next. <laughs> <laughs> that's, another thing that's gone from that from that era right <laughs> yeah well look tom, right. tom i don't i don't want to keep you i know it's late where you are you're on the east coast so it's very late where you are yeah. um, th- actually, thank you for taking the time yeah thank you oh, it was it was fun and different <laughs> <laughs> I hope a, that's a good thing. Oh yeah, we should do it uh, uh, again. At least, uh, please try to um, make time to 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 come and see me. You know, when you're here, we're in 
the Berkshires, Western Massachusetts. I could travel. Uh, I'm supposed. I, I'm literally supposed to be doing something in Western Massachusetts next spring. I'm being totally serious. Great. It's a small state. I can. I can drive. Uh, look, I, I would be honored if you were there to hear me ramble on about uh, leftist politics. Yeah, uh, in a room full I'm of nerds. I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> this is a very Thank blue uh, area, very blue state, very blue town. Yeah. I used okay. to play Pittsfield all the time. Yeah. If yeah, you know Pittsfield, next, yeah. That's the next town. Yeah. Well, I used thanks. to play Pittsfield all the time. Thank you. Thank you. Have a very good evening. And, uh, and everybody, again, wherever you are watching or listening to this show, there are links in the description to Tom's book. Okay. Turn it up. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night. So sorry, guys. I got disconnected. Uh, the power went out on me here in Mexico. I thought I was going to be able to do the show. I was preparing to do it in a cafe somewhere downtown where usually power is on. And bam, the power went out. I'm kind of I'm kind of pissed off right now because it's extremely dark in my house and I hope nobody closed the gate because if they did, then I'm locked in this dark house and I can't get out of it. So do me a favor. Cross your fingers that the gate is still open and I can leave here and I'm not trapped in my own house. And I don't even understand why the power's out. It just rained a little bit. It's not even windy. I, I you know, go get the book. It's a it's a fun read. You, you know, again, when you're reading it, it feels like uh, you can you can feel the excitement in his in his face as you're reading the words off the page. Um, I believe that he wrote it probably without a ghostwriter. Tom it has an MBA from Columbia. Uh, I love his story about being a, a Ivy League to the record industry. Great story. Um, Jason's taking a poop. <laughs> I'm not. I'm in the dark. I would grab a candle, but I, the candle would probably look scarier if I went and grabbed a candle. Um, the champagne room will have to be the Miller High Life room this time. <laughs> no champagne room on Wednesday. Uh, I'm, I'm really stoked I got to talk to Tom. Um, that man made a lot of records that I really appreciate. And I think it's hilarious. He was like, I like guns. I don't really remember anything from that. <laughs> oh, the new gosh. <laughs> oh, well, look, this is even more of a reason why you guys should come see me this Saturday in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So you can see me not in a horror setting. This is extremely uncomfortable for me as well. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, Hilda. Hey, Hilda. Hopefully I'll see you Saturday, Hilda. If I don't see you Saturday, then I will be very upset with you. Hilda is the significant other of Bitter Lakes drummer, who's also in the chat right now. Also the guy that masters all those new Bitter Lakes songs. Um, so yeah, this was a fun conversation. Thank you guys for hanging out tomorrow. Um, 
I won't be live because I have to record the show beforehand because of uh, time zones. And we had another issue recording the show <laughs> last time. Monday, I was recording a show with Michael Harris about his new book, Come With Me If You Want to Live. And uh, Restream, the system that we use to, uh, to do these shows, went down. In the middle of the show, just went down. We were stuck. We had to stop. Um, we rescheduled, and the only time I could get him was kind of a few hours before we usually go live. So I'm going to record that. Won't be live, but we should be doing a live champagne room if if power situations uh, get better. So, like I said, cross your fingers. Hopefully, this is a, a short-term thing. Um, I do live in Mexico, where infrastructure is not the best. Um, so. Thank you guys. And hopefully I'll see you guys tomorrow in the champagne room. And I am out. Jesus Christ, dude. Thank you.